Genesis chapter 7 this morning. Just going to go ahead and read this uh, chapter as we're going through the book of Genesis. Not through the entire book, we're just doing a study of these early chapters, trying to get a the idea of these great sweeping principles that lay the foundation for the Bible story. A lot of time being covered, of course, in a very short uh, span in Scripture. Uh, it says, Then the Lord said to Noah, and we're in the middle of his story, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you every clean animal by sevens, a male and his, and his female, and of all the animals that are not clean too, a male and his female. Also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land everything, living thing that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every keep creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah to, by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh entered as God had commanded him and the Lord closed it behind him. Then the floods came upon the earth for 40 days and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. And the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. And the water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. And the water prevailed 15 cubits higher than the mountains were, and the mountains were covered. And all the flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils were the breath of the spirit of life died. And he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the earth from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. And they were blotted out from the earth and only Noah was left together with all those that were with him in the ark and the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Well, uh, certainly a tragic, uh, stirring story here of judgment that falls upon humanity now that for some time has been walking away from God. As I read this story, it just happened to coincide with one of the news articles that came up uh, in my newsfeed, my Google Earth 
that I read. It just happened to come across, uh, I read a b- bunch of different news feeds. Uh, and this one happened to be, an, uh, uh, it was actually an old story. I don't know how it uh, figured to pop up, but it was uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's an astrophysicist. And uh, he was, it was an article in which he said that he did not believe in God. And the reason that he gave, and I have a quote here, he said, the more I look at the universe, just the less convinced I am that there is something benevolent going on. If your concept of a creator is someone who's all powerful and all good, that's not an uncommon pairing of powers that you might ascribe to your creator. I look at disasters that affect that afflict earth and life on earth. Volcanoes, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, disease, pestilence, congenital birth defects. And you look at this list of ways that life is made miserable on earth by natural causes. And I just ask, how do you deal with that? So he says, I look at all of these disasters. Uh, And here was certainly a tremendous disaster. And he says, how do you Reconcile that with the concept of an all-powerful and benevolent uh, God. He said, I, I don't see that as I look at the earth. Well, first of all, if I would say this, that if evil and misery in the world argue against the existence of God, at least of a benevolent God, we wouldn't say it argues completely. We just have to say whoever he is, he's not, he's not as benevolent as we would like him to be uh, in that he would overlook all of the issues that might come. Everything would be, would be good and dandy. But if that's true, that that's an argument, then surely... It has to also be acknowledged that the goodness and kindness and provisions, love, all of the brilliance in the world have to argue for the existence of a, of a benevolent God to some extent. He may not be as benevolent as we like, but if you're going to point to the disasters and say, well, that's evidence there is no God, then you also have to look and say, you know, people don't seem to be anxious, at least most of them. It happens to get out of this world. We, we celebrate life and its goodness, its provisions. There's food, warmth, sunlight, love, kindness, joy. All of these good things that are there have to then also be conceded. Well, yes, then uh, they argue for the other side. Now, what no one can deny, and I don't deny that the world is full of misery, both natural disaster and human-created disaster uh, is in the earth. But also, you can't deny that the earth is full of goodness, beauty, joy, provisions, love, those things that make life good. And Paul makes that very argument about God in Acts chapter 14, when he calls upon the idea of a creator to the people who were living at Lystra after they had healed a lame man and they were going to bow down and worship them as Zeus and Hermes. And he says, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you in verse 15 and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. And in the generations gone gone by, he permitted uh, all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good 
and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. So he says, look, God let the nations go their own way. And we're reading what happens when men go their own way here in the book of Genesis. That's the story of men choosing to live without God. But he said God didn't abandon humanity. And he left a witness of himself in the earth and the goodness that you see and the fruitful seasons that come, the provisions that are in the earth is there because God is still showing himself in faithfulness to humanity. Now, according to the Bible, beginning in Genesis, this is the Bible story. This is the Bible's explanation. It has to be taken for us in the context of all God did, including the history of the nation of Israel, but ultimately to the coming of Jesus Christ in fulfillment of the promises that God made, His death, and the testimony and evidence of the resurrection. Those are things we know and believe. So it has to be understood in the context of that. Israel understood the book of Genesis, as we've tried to emphasize, in the context of God delivering them out of their slavery in the land of Egypt. And that's very important uh, to understand that the curse according to the law that is upon the earth is the direct result of man rebelling against God and choosing to believe a liar, a deceiver, to follow Satan rather than to continue to trust and walk with God. That's what's happening. Israel knew Jehovah. They knew who He was. They had seen His power. They had seen His goodness. He had delivered them from their bondage in Egypt. And furthermore, they understood that deliverance was in a greater context of a promise that had been made to their ancestor and forefather, Abraham. So they were aware as they went down into Egypt that God had made a promise to their ancestor, to Abraham. And what were the three elements of the promise and the covenant that God made with Abraham? One, that he would be the father of many nations. A second promise was they would receive the land of Canaan. And that was going to be the promise, of course, through the heir uh, that would be given the, the blessing uh, that, would, that would come, that eventually, of course, Isaac and Jacob received that blessing and their children are to receive the inheritance of the land. And then the final and most critical promise was that in Abraham's seed, and we've already seen the importance of that concept of seed in Genesis 3, the seed of woman who would crush the head of Satan, that in his seed, all the families of the earth were going to be blessed. And that seed ultimately is fulfilled. And Paul, you can read it, his uh, uh, declaration of that in Galatians, not unto seeds as to many, but to seed that is Christ. He was talking about the Christ and what Jesus would accomplish. But Genesis, uh, that's in Genesis 12, that promise is made. Moses recounting it. And how does Genesis end? Genesis 50. They go down into Egypt. And why are they in Egypt? By God's providence. What happened? I heard it. Famine. Famine in the land would have wiped them out, except God had already made preparations, not because they were the best 
people because uh, their, their savior down in Egypt is there because the brothers uh, had sold him into slavery. Joseph is there. God's raised him up and he's now second only to Pharaoh. And so the he, the people are brought down into the land, live in the land of Goshen. Uh, they're placed there, blessed there, uh, and they go down, but they go down knowing they're not meant to stay. And in particular, you know, you might, who, who knows they're not meant to stay? Joseph does. Because when Joseph dies, the book of Genesis ends with Joseph making the children of Israel swear that what? And take his bones back to Canaan. And that's an amazing statement of faith by Joseph. I know we're not going to as a people remain here. The book of Genesis ends. This great story uh, that is part of this with Joseph saying, take me to the land of Canaan that God has promised when you go back. It's nearly 400 years about that before that promise is fulfilled and God sends Moses and their fortunes have changed dramatically. Again, as disaster took them down into Egypt, now disaster makes them long to leave Egypt. They're in slavery and they're crying out to God and God sends the deliverer and He delivers them by a mighty hand, shows Himself through Moses and the plagues that come upon Egypt that He is superior to all the gods to which they attributed power over all these things. But He's not just the God of that's greater than Egypt. He's a God greater than all gods because there are no other gods. And that's the message of uh, Israel to the world. There's just one God. One true and living God. Their God who delivered them. And that carries an important message for us and them. And, and what that is meant to say is Egypt became corrupt, terrible. God judges them. They eventually face a judgment for which they lose all of their prominence. Assyria does the same. Babylon. But who, who is the God of Egypt? Jehovah God. Because there's just one. Who's the God of Assyria? It's Jehovah God. There's just one God. He's the God of all the earth. Even though they've forgotten Him and they worshiped false gods and they claimed that these were their gods, the reality is there's just one God and God had not forgotten His covenant with the whole earth. God is dealing not just with Israel. He's trying to, to bring about His redemption for the earth. And that's the story of Jonah tells us. God was interested in and loves humanity. But when you see these other nations suffering and the judgment coming, it's because of their wickedness. And not because God doesn't love them too. It's because they've rejected the true God and walked away from Him. And that's the pattern in the book of Genesis. So the opening here is so important. Uh, as you read these foundation chapters, man is put in a garden He's blessed. He's walking with God. He has life with God. Satan enters. And now you have men choosing as the nations in Acts 14 to walk away from God. And the consequences that are tragic inevitably follow. There's no, and I keep repeating this because I want us to get it. There's no life without 
God. There's no life without Him. He is the life giver. He is the source of life. So there, there's no life with Him. Just as you turn the electricity off in your house, if you flip the switch, the lights go out. Why? It can't burn without the electricity. If you cut the electricity off, then, then they go dark. Uh, they have to have the electricity. And if you were to say to the light, don't leave the electricity. Don't walk away from the electricity. If you do, you're going to go out. <laughs> you're going to lose your light. Uh, that's not a threat. That's just stating the reality of the truth of it. And so when God says to man, if you eat of this fruit, you're going to die. It's bigger than just, because I'll be so angry with you. I'm just going to take it out on you. That's not it. He's there telling them as a father would tell a son, life is with me. Don't choose life without me. If you choose life without me, then death will follow. And man chooses life without God. And death follows. And sin comes in. And then sin grows in magnitude. Not only does it sweep over humanity, the seriousness of it begins to unfold. So that in Genesis 4, brother kills brother. Murder now is on the earth. There is sort of a climax already. Then you have Lamech, who is a double murderer and a bigamist. Uh, and so God's plan for humanity is being corrupted and violence is spreading. And so Genesis 5 says death reigns now through sin. And he died, and he died, and he died. That's the story that we have. But there was a glimmer of hope, you remember, in Genesis 5, in the midst of that death, Enoch walks with God and is not because God took him. And so there's a blessing. That, and that sort of follows Genesis 4, which ends, even though you have Lamech and Cain, it says, then men began to call on the Lord. There seems to be at least a moment in all of this history that there were some, the sons of Seth, it appears, who were calling on the Lord, these being the sons of God. And then Kent, as we talked about Genesis 6, didn't spend a lot of time, and I won't spend a lot of time unless I have more this morning, but the Nephilim, uh, the fallen ones, uh, the sons of God, behold the sons of oh, daughters of men, marry them because they're attractive. And there have been lots of speculation, and I would just urge you to Follow the word Nephilim and Rephaim, uh, which seem to be two branches of these uh, giant, mighty, uh, this race uh, that was upon the earth. But these are men. And there were still their remnants on the earth when uh, Joshua leads the people into the land. In fact, they didn't want to go in in the beginning. Why? There were giants in the land. There were giants there. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. They had fortified cities. So if you go reading uh, through in the book of Numbers 13 in, in Gaza and Gath and Ashdod, there were still these giants there. Even after they went in and were conquering the cities, in those three cities, they were remaining until Caleb says, I want the hill country. And, and I know there are fortified cities and giants there, but God's going to help me get them out. So you have them, you have the sons of Anak, who were the Rephium, and they were also in the land, and, and they, 
uh, one of their descendants is Og of Bashan, the king of Bashan, who is described as having a bed. We don't know how big he was, but his bed was nine cubits by four cubits. Now, Goliath was six cubits in a span high. So how big was Og? I, I don't know if his bed was made to fit. He was a pretty large guy. He's one of the last of this race. So when you read the story of Goliath, where's Goliath from? Gath. He is from Gath, where some of the remnant of this race was there. Read the rest of the story. He's not the only giant. There are three others that are described as descendants uh, of the giant. That is the race. That mean they don't mean they're Goliath's children. It means that this race, there were others there which means it's even more impressive when we read that Goliath was the champion of the Philistines. He didn't just whip the little guys, he whipped the big guys too. He was the champion of uh, whatever uh, games that they played to determine that. Very impressive fellow physically and agile as well. So he, he was impressive, but there were others in the land who were ultimately wiped out. Uh, in the end. And I'll just make this closing remark. In the book of Ezekiel, you can read in chapter 32 where the mighty men are described there. But there's a list there as God is talking about the judgment that is about to fall upon uh, the nations. In particular, he's talking about Egypt. But he says, Egypt is going the way of all nations. All these great, mighty nations that terrorized the earth, that filled the earth with violence, and now they're buried and gone. And he recounts several of them. Assyria uh, was one. Uh, Elam is there. And he talks about then also the mighty men, uh, Tubal and the mighty men. And if you look in the margin, it's the same word. Uh, who are buried with their swords, they terrorized the earth. So the point being, these were mighty conquerors who subdued the earth, brought men under their subjection, uh, but are no more. They came under judgment and now they're gone. Uh, but there's no indication that Goliath was, had angel DNA. And that's the, these were just a race of impressive, mighty men. And they had attractive daughters, and the sons of God saw them and desired them. Uh, and, and that's much more fitting with the story of Israel and the Bible, which tells us, be not deceived, what? Evil companions corrupt good morals. Be careful. So Israel's told, don't intermarry with the nations around you because I'm trying to keep you from the folly that they are following. That's the message when God says to us, be careful about who you choose to marry because they're going to have an impact on you and who you are and the choices that you make. So just read that through. There are a lot of scriptures. Deuteronomy 2 talk about the Anakim again, sons of Anak. But trust me, these are just people, but they're an impressive race who come to judgment. Well, in Genesis 7, the flood comes. What, what's happened? Humanity has reached a terminal condition. The pulse is gone. You say, why is God doing this? 
the, there's no pulse in humanity. What do you do with a corpse? You bury it. God is simply burying the corpse of humanity. That's what's happening. He's removing the cancer that has destroyed humanity. There's violence and godlessness all through the earth. This is a mercy killing. It is not a simply, it is certainly we can talk about God's wrath against sin. But when you look at this, it isn't just that God is saying, I'm so angry, I'm just going to wipe them out. There's no pulse left in humanity, even though God has two plans to save humanity, doesn't he? What's his first plan? What's the one he would have preferred? They repent. He's got the, he's got the, you know, those shocker thing. He's trying to, for 120 years, he's saying, you know, hit it. Because he's got no out there preaching. He's a preacher of righteousness. And God's patient with a godless world 120 years. He's saying, you know, hit it, hit it, hit it. And what's happening? Nothing. It's a flat line. And then, there's just the faintest pulse, we might say, in humanity. It's Noah. And before the light goes out, God saves Noah, and in saving Noah does what? He saves humanity. It isn't just Noah who's, the world is saved. You and I are saved. The human race is saved because God is fair. And God doesn't wait until the last light goes out and there's no hope left. He saves Noah, a righteous man and his family, and delivers them from this godless world so that Humanity might be saved and his plan for humanity might be fulfilled. And I love the statement of McGuigan in, in his little book. He says, Not all the darkness of the world gone mad could hide from God the flickering light of Noah's life. So by faith, Noah being warned by God of things not seen, the Hebrew writer says, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Do you realize this morning by you're sitting here, you're condemning the world? You understand that? That you today are much more than people railing on Twitter or some other uh, social media ranting about this or that. You want to condemn the world? You want to condemn the unrighteousness in the world? You know how you do it? You live a righteous life. You choose to walk with God. And in choosing to walk with God, you demonstrate that you can walk with God. This is the way of life. It's possible to do it. Even in a dark and black world, Noah stands up as an example and becomes an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. And you and I this morning, you know what you're doing? You're building an ark this morning. Those of you that are parents this morning, you're building an ark. 
by which you might deliver your children through faith in Christ Jesus. That's what's happening. And God is patient. And He was with the whole world. This is not a story about destroying the world. Whatever, even though it is a warning to wickedness. And and 2 Peter 2 talks about it in that light. Look, God will judge the wicked. And he talks about judgments and he includes Noah in that list of judgments. But this is not a story about destroying the world. I want to tell you it's a story about saving the world. That's what's happening. And you need to see it from that point of view. Because even in 2 Peter 2, what's the lesson? God knows how to do what? Judge the ungodly and to preserve the righteous. Rescue the righteous. God rescued Noah and the world. Matthew 24, Jesus talked about the judgment that was coming one day upon the earth, the final judgment. And He said, in those days, it's going to be just like what? Days of Noah. Now, it's an interesting chapter, and Luke recounts it too, because he says it's going to be just like in the days of Noah. Now, in the days of Noah, Genesis describes that generation. How does Genesis describe that generation? Total depravity. You know, total depravity. Every thought of their heart wicked. But when Jesus describes it, he says it'll be just like in Noah's day when they were what? Marrying and giving in marriage. Does that sound like total depravity to you? Well, then what does it say? Because that has always puzzled me. Well, wait a minute. I, I thought these were just the, you know, I always had this vision that if you walked out, Noah walked out his door, uh, everyone, you know, that's all that was. It wasn't that. If that's not the world. He may have walked down the road and, and over here there's a wedding party. And, and, uh, and here's a man taking a, a wife and, and a celebration of that. And, and maybe if you walk down a little further, there was a new baby born and people were celebrating the birth of that baby and a child that had been born. Oh, they may walk down all kinds of things to the market. But let me tell you what was not present at the wedding and wasn't present at the birth of the baby, wasn't present at the business. You know what, you know what wasn't there? Any thought about the living God that gave all of the blessings to humanity. There was no thought of God anywhere. It was an ungodly time. They took wives for the same reason that people take wives all over the earth in order to satisfy the desires of the flesh and procreate and have family for a legacy for self and all of those things that have, but it wasn't acknowledged as a gift from God with a purpose from God to be fulfilled in the way that God, that was not part of it. And so when we think about a godless world, it doesn't mean that there's not some things going. We say, well, that's pretty good over there. Well, yeah, and, and we ought to thank God for it. <laughs> we ought to acknowledge. That's what Paul is saying. You know those fruitful seasons that you got and you're bringing it in and you're offering it up to this idol over here? <laughs> he didn't give it to you. 
It was the living God who did it, Jehovah God. And that's the story. And so as we read this tragic end, it's also a glorious beginning. And it's a glorious beginning that many of you have followed in the footsteps of. Because Peter recounts it, doesn't he? In 1 Peter chapter 3, he says in verse 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that He might bring us to God. Trying to bring us back. We walked away. He's brought us back. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedience when the patience of God kept warning in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And really it's, it's they were saved by the water is what the language is here in this text. Not, not that they were saved from the water, they were saved through the water because they were delivered from the ungodly world. That's the imagery. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to Him. The waters of baptism, like the waters of the flood or waters of separation, They're waters that deliver us from an ungodly world, from the domain of darkness, from death and its grip, sin and its power, delivers us out of that into the kingdom of God's dear Son. We're raised up to walk in a new life, in a new world, in a new relationship. That's all of the imagery there. And the ark of deliverance is Christ Himself. We are baptized into Him and delivered and raised up with Him. That's the story. God is still saving the world. It's what He's always been about. The time will come when He will judge the world. And it ought to make us tremble to think about that judgment. You can be certain about it, and He means to do it. And Genesis tells us that He's serious about it. When the time comes to bury the corpse, the corpse will be buried. But that isn't what God is calling us to. That isn't why He made us. And He's always had a message of good news for those who will hear it. And we've got it. And we're telling people, turn from ungodliness and walk with God and be saved from this wicked and perverse generation.